Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. May God write it on our hearts. Thank you, Dylan, that we may not sin against him. Okay. Uh, So as we dive into this text, one, it's my absolute dear pleasure once again, and so soon after the last time, be able to uh, be the one before you presenting the word, though it is a daunting task, it is one that I'm very excited uh, to welcome. Um, So in thinking about how to really introduce this text, I began to think of a few things. Um, So I began to think about the idea of a welcomed reception. There are many things in life that have a reception or a type of reception associated with them. You think of things like weddings, right? There's literally a thing called a wedding reception as opposed to the ceremony. There's this great thing that happened and then they come in and it's this friendly, warm welcoming. Or you, you can even think of things like, uh, like these videos that will always bring at least a tear to your eye if you have a soul. Uh, of Like these soldiers coming home and greeting their children in school for the first time in years that they're seeing them. Uh, and so these... These sorts of, uh, of images come to mind. I, I sort of had my own sort of like reception last night as I walked into a surprise party that I had no idea about for um, uh, my, my birthday that my lovely wife put on. Um, all of these things tend to be really welcoming, warm, loving invitations to, uh, to, to come into a people um, that dearly love you and a dearly um, uh, desire your betterment. While Paul gets an element of that, what we're really going to find in our text today is exactly what the Holy Spirit had promised him prior to now, which was, yes, James is going to have a really warm reception waiting for him, but then Paul is going to... Um, to, to be privy to what the Spirit had already revealed to him and what Agabus confirmed in the, the previous passage was that Paul is now going to be imprisoned. So we're going to see this morning, this is the, the last time we see, uh, uh, in our, our last, last text, we saw Paul make a beeline straight for Jerusalem. He is hurrying his way here to get ready for Pentecost. And our God, Paul, has been all over the Roman world preaching the gospel, planting churches, reasoning with philosophers, and being a part of a great movement of, of God among the Gentiles. Um, and so in our text this morning, as we've just uh, heard read a, a moment ago, we see Paul's last minutes of freedom. He's going to be bound for Rome, um, bound by ropes, and he's going to be taken uh, uh, to, to Rome. And he's never again going to know the freedoms that he had known pr- prior. That doesn't stop his missionary zeal. He's just preaching to a different kind of person now. He's going to be preaching to leaders and rulers. And even eventually, uh, church history tells us that he would reach even the ears of Caesar to make his appeal. But before that, we have to deal with our passage this morning. So this is not going to be sort of our standard outline where it's one, two, three points of thematic relevance. Really, this text is very contextual. I really struggled putting this together in a way that really makes sense for you and I, but I think there's some great truths that we can uh, apply from this text to our own lives. But if, if you need two points to kind of help break up these actions. I've used this for the sake of an outline to hopefully let us get a grasp of the passage. First, we're going to see the charity of the church. That's going to be our first chunk of scripture. And then second, our larger chunk is going to be the slander of sinners. So the charity of the church, slander of sinners. Hopefully those are going to help you and be able to think through and parse out the scripture. 
So without further ado, let's dive into our text and see what the Lord has for us. So first off though, we see in verse 17, it's finally happened after many weeks here and many days of anticipation that Paul has been communicating his desire to go to Jerusalem. That desire has been realized. The Lord has led him to Jerusalem. He enters the city. As Wes pointed out, and I'll make mention of a moment ago, he's following Jesus's sort of uh, um, uh, um, direction to return as sort of a, a final place of ministry to Jerusalem. And so Paul is, after a long, and yet hurried voyage through the Aegean Sea and through, throughout Asia is finally coming back to, uh, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit, finally coming back to Jerusalem. Paul's finally going to the place that he knew the Spirit was leading him. So the first thing he does is the same thing that he does in every other city. If you'll remember, when Paul gets to a city, regardless of, of in Asia, in Greece, in, in uh, uh, the region of Antioch, or even in the area of Jerusalem, first thing he does is what? He goes and he encourages the disciples. That has been his mantra. And then his evangelistic efforts start in the synagogue. But what does he do? He's received by the church. He's received by the disciples at Jerusalem. He finds here at Jerusalem a rather warm welcome, at least from the church. I'm certain that uh, this was uh, that. Um, I'm, I'm certain that this reception from the, uh, the, the brothers at Jerusalem was something very encouraging and warm and helpful to Paul. Paul had a long journey of a bunch of people trying to convince him that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. But now he's received by, by these brothers. He had just heard Agabus' prophecy sometime before, and more than likely, uh, uh, he, it, it almost, the brothers are around him from the way that Luke writes. It almost seems like they expected it to happen immediately. Like they pull into port and the Roman centurions are just going to be waiting there with chains to take him to Rome. That's how strongly all of these brothers felt about what was going to happen the moment you got to Jerusalem. And so this is a very encouraging meeting for Paul. He gets to, to meet James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is James the Great. Now, if you'll remember early on in our study of Acts, there was a James that was killed um, early on in Acts, Acts uh, 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 right, bef- right before Acts 6, right before, Stephen's, uh, 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 right before Stephen's sermon and eventual martyrdom. James is also killed. Uh, no, I'm sorry, right before uh, Peter's in- incarceration. It was, it, was, it was after even James the Lesser, which was the disciple under Jesus, James, was killed and, and martyred. Not the same dude. Dude didn't come back from the dead. This is James the Great. This is actually the brother of Jesus, who we can see from, uh, from indications throughout Jesus' ministry in the gospel was an unbeliever during Jesus' earthly ministry. But then in the resurrection, Jesus appeared not only to the disciples, but also to his family, to his brother James. He became convinced, like you do when a guy raises from the dead that you've known all your life and watched him die. He became convinced that Oh my gosh, my brother is, this is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. He is exactly who he said he was. And as a result, he devoted his life to the proclamation of the gospel among the Jewish people. It was the Jewish people that he thought that God was leading him to lead. And so when Peter, uh, as a result of his incarceration and then, and then eventual escape from prison, where he goes and he, he joins and reconnects with uh, the church at Jerusalem. Peter then sets off on his own missionary exploits. That's not as well recorded in the book of Acts, but he goes off leaving the church at Jerusalem in, in the charge of James the Great, the brother of Jesus. So this James, he is in fact a very key player in Jerusalem. By using, in verse 18, we see that Luke, in using words like Paul went with us 
to James. Luke is letting us know the following day after their arrival, Paul took the Gentiles in with him to meet these brothers. Now, the church at Jerusalem is still very much Jewish, very Jewish. And it's not a bad thing during this time. There's a lot of Judeo-Christian crossover within the church. There are still Jews, as we'll even see in our text, some not so healthily, but others in a healthy way, observing still parts of the ceremonial law that, that Christians in other parts of the world, they had already decided didn't have to but they were still retaining some of their Jewish identity at the church in Jerusalem. But Paul, being as bold as a lion and knowing the love that James has, not for just for the Jews, but for all that are in Christ, he takes these Gentiles in. Paul took the Gentiles, his traveling companions, with him when he met the Jewish, uh, uh, the, the Judeo-Christian elders um, of the church of Jerusalem. This shows boldness and impartiality on the part of Paul. Paul was not ashamed of these Gentile brothers. He had, to, he had seen God do a mighty work among them and he was ready to bring them before these brothers as a declaration of the mighty work of God. But at the same time, I want to be clear here, Paul is not bringing these men as the token Gentiles just to get, gain credibility or to see how countercultural or edgy or inclusive he was. That's not Paul's purposes here. Paul brought these men among the brothers for two reasons. One, he loved them. And he had spent a bunch of time, many years with Luke, many years with these brothers. He had spent tons of time with them and he loved them dearly. And he wanted them to help in the testimony that he's gonna give before the Jerusalem church that God is doing something far away that is amazing and that you should be celebrating here. God is doing something among the Gentiles that we need to celebrate in Jerusalem as Jews. Praise God for this. And so he's helping uh, to give testimony. He, he brought these men to help give testimony that the Lord is doing a great things among the Gentile people. And so Paul brought them. In, in, in verses 19 and 20, he, uh, it says that he, they related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. So he brought these men in and he's uh, describing to the, the brothers at Jerusalem, the, the elders, which there's another evidence of a plural leadership, even within one church. We're talking about Jerusalem. There's not a bunch of churches, Christian churches in Jerusalem. There's one, and they have multiple elders that are all seeking with one heart and one mind to love God and obey him and enjoy him and uh, glorify him to the, the utmost. And so Paul brings these Gentiles among this group of people. He's not before the whole church. He's before the elders. He brought them, uh, brought these Gentiles before them, and, he, and they began to relate one by one the things that God had done. He told them about how in Athens he got to engage with the 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 um, the worldly sort of Greek philosophers in the in the the courtyard, where he gets to point out that they're worshiping all of these false gods, when in reality this unknown God is the Lord of all. He gets to tell them about how he went through all of Mesopotamia, uh, uh, Mesopotamia and Galatia, and how the Lord prevented him from going up north into a different land and how he crossed over into Greece and how he was ran out of town by the Thessalonians and then how he was received by the Bereans and then chased out of that town again by those who followed him. He told him about the riot in Ephesus and the years that he spent there preaching the gospel. He got to declare the good things that God was doing to these people. If you've been following along with us in the past weeks, you might think this fact is obvious that after Paul had communicated this, what happened? When they heard it, they glorified God. 
That's what our text says. After greeting them and relating things one by one, when they heard it, speaking of the, the men, the brothers of Jerusalem, they glorified God. That was the first, period. They glorified God, period. Now, there's other things that are going to come, but we have to think here. These men are genuinely excited for what God is doing and a completely different, a, a people that was once cut off from God's goodness has now been grafted in because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done. It, it might seem to us obvious that, uh, of course, they're excited to see him. If you've been following along with us, you know what Paul is also carrying with him. It's a gift, right? He's bringing a large purse sum for the church at Jerusalem who is experiencing a famine. And so he's bringing in this gift. They have a huge monetary gift to give to Jerusalem. Of course, they're excited. This is true, but Paul doesn't even mention the gift here. It's not even talked about that it's exchanged. The only reference we have to the gift that Paul is uh, uh, brought and transported to the church of Jerusalem is in Acts 24, 17, when they briefly mention it, when, when Paul is giving an account to Felix, one of the leaders that he's going to stand before and make his appeal. No, the men of Jerusalem do not get it twisted, are glorifying God exactly for the right reasons. And that is, there is a revival coming among the Gentiles. There's revival coming hundreds of miles away that we are praying for and that we're excited that God is doing. These brothers are, are stoked for what is going on in a different part of the, the world. Their heart for the nations is evident here. The proper response to revival coming to a nation, a city, a county, a church, whether it's yours or not, whether it's ours or not, is glory to God and praise to his name. The proper response to this is glorifying God, praising his name, and being excited that people are coming to know the Lord and Savior Christ. It doesn't matter if it's a church away, a city away, county, state, country away. The proper response to God bringing revival among a people is worship and praise. Guys, we're not in the business of competition. That's not what this is. There is no place in Christendom among churches for envy, jealousy, covetousness. We should be rejoicing when others who are not of the fold of God finally see the truth, repent, and turn to the Lord Jesus, regardless of whether or not that happens among us or not, regardless of whether or not we're self-sustaining or not, regardless of whether or not it happens the way and the timing that we want it to happen. We should be celebrating that people know the Lord Jesus as master. This is why we as Baptists have committed ourselves for so long on the idea of cooperation among churches. We literally have a program that is nationwide called the cooperative program that we give to in hopes to glorify God among each other as we can help one another. That said, I want to be clear, there are many churches that are not a part of the true church. There are false, false churches out there. That's evident when we study scripture. We've talked about a, a little about that in weeks past. There are those who seek to look like the people of God, but either through their preaching or their practice, deny him as Lord, which leads us kind of to our next point. If you see in verse 20b, the second half of that verse, all the way through uh, 22, um, th there is a people that will certainly hear that Paul has arrived. And it's the people that have been hearing things about Paul and are not as excited as James is, not as excited as the elders are. James and, and the elders warn Paul that although they are excited, joyful, that they are glorifying God about the things that are happening among the Gentiles, and they're turning to Christ in belief, there are those, even within their church, at Jerusalem, that are not so excited. 
James tells Paul that there are those in the city who have disagreed with Paul's message, and I put that in air quotes on purpose, his message to the Gentiles and are not happy that he is, is here. They will learn of his presence in the city eventually and they will come for him. That's what James is communicating here. There are, not those, there are those in the city that are not excited about what you're doing and they will certainly know that you've come and they will come for you. I want to make a couple of observations here, two specifically. The leadership here is not condoning what even members of their, potentially of their congregation, but definitely people of the city think about Paul and his ministry. They are rejoicing in the salvation of the, of the Gentiles, but they know an objective fact that there are those in this city who reject that the gospel should go to Gentiles and that have misunderstood the message of Paul. They too are making an observation, the, the elders are, in a suggestion. They are not saying that they agree with those who will eventually slander Paul. They are saying, look, this is coming. Just prepare yourself. And two, the others, that is the others that James uh, mentions here, the, the others that will hear Paul's coming that are not as excited about this, uh, they have heard an exaggerated account of what Paul is doing. And I put message a moment ago in air quotes because they believe that Paul is teaching that, that the Gentiles and people who trust in, in, uh, in the, the law, people who have worshipped Yahweh for years, this is Jewish people among, among the Gentiles or Gentiles themselves, should turn away and disregard entirely the law of Moses. That the law has no, no place now because Jesus. Paul was not doing this. I want to be very clear. He was not simply teaching that the, the he was not teaching that the Gentiles uh, needed to, or, I'm, I'm sorry, he was not teaching that the Jews needed to stop being Jewish. He was simply teaching that the Gentiles didn't need to be Jewish because Christ, Christ has come. They don't need to adhere to the, the law, be circumcised, make sacrifices often because they're not Jews. They didn't make that covenant with the Lord. And so they simply needed to follow and obey Christ, who himself kept the whole law and is our substitute when we fail to do so. He was not teaching uh, that Jews should stop being Jews, which is what these, these people are accusing him of. And we're going to see in our passage, they're misunderstanding Paul's, Paul's teaching here. He's not saying, you who are Jews, stop being Jews. He's, he's saying, you Gentiles who have never been Jewish don't need to be Jewish in order to follow Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves and faith in Christ that justifies us. And then it will be that justification that leads us then to faithful obedience to Christ's commands. In verses 23 through 25, we see then as a result of this uh, observation that there are others who have heard an exaggerated uh, account of what Christ, or I'm sorry, what Paul um, has said about following Christ. These people, James has proposed a suggestion about how to deal with these people. And we see that in verses 23 through 25. The suggestion that James makes in this passage is to have Paul join these four other men from the, within their congregation, or at least that they know, at the Jerusalem church in a ceremonial cleansing. These men have taken a vow, it says. Now, there's 
a little bit of, of confusion about what this vow means, this is more than likely a Nazarite vow. We've already seen this in Acts. Paul himself took a Nazarite vow um, at one point during his ministry. This vow was essentially a vow made with the Lord uh, to grow your hair out long as a man. You grow your hair out long. You abstain from wine and strong drink and avoid contact with the dead. This was done to illustrate a time of devotion to God. The Nazarite vow was instituted by God himself in Numbers chapter six. You can go there and you can see all the specific details about what it entails. It's a, God himself institutes it as a means within the nation of Israel to devote themselves to the Lord in a significant way for a portion of time. This was not meant to be permanent. This was not meant to be perpetual. If there was no time frame given, like specified by the individual, it was to last 40 days. And typically it would be the 40 days leading up to one of the festivals that they would have. And there were three major festivals within the life of the Jews. It was this one, Pentecost. It was uh, uh, Passover and it was the, uh, the Feast of Booze, uh, celebrating the time that Israel spent wandering in, in the wilderness being led by God. So these three festivals, it was typically done 40 days prior to those. This principle, this vow that they've taken is very similar to how the Bible teaches about and the New Testament talks about fasting. It's done for a season of time in devotion to God. We deny something that we think we need or at least would gain pleasure from, food, drink, something dietary, so that we may feast on the Lord God so that we may feast on God's word, that we may obey what Christ has said, that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So um, we may feast on God's truth by de denying others. There's only two people in this scripture, in all of scripture that I've seen to have taken a lifelong Nazarite vow. That's John the Baptist and Samson. But at the end of their time, and this is significant for our text, at the end of the Nazarite vow, they're to sacrifice they're to cut their hair, which is usually around the time of the festival or celebration. They would cut their hair and they would burn it along with a variety of offerings. Paul himself took this vow, but we see in this offering uh, that, that they were going to be, be making in order to conclude this vow and be considered clean and free. The law requires both water and blood. We'll get to that in just a moment. This cleansing was no small matter. It lasted about seven days. We see in our text that Paul began this sort of ceremonial cleansing. It took place over several days. It typically lasted seven and consisted of being bathed, usually done underground in a natural flowing spring or a living spring. You know, there's kind of correlations there between what Christ talked about, about living water, a living and moving stream, typically un underneath a portion of the sea. It is typically where part of the cleansing would be done. Um, it wouldn't be done in a stationary collected sort of tub that, that we would normally think about in, in cleaning something. In number six, this is really, really interesting and really important for our text here. In number six, this ritual also consists of the sacrifices of, at minimum, one male lamb without blemish, one ram without blemish, a basket of unleavened bread, unleavened wafers that were smeared with oil, a grain offering and a drink offering. And then it says, and whatever else they want to bring, whatever else they want to sacrifice and offer to the Lord. Those things were demanded of people that, that are concluding their Nazarite vow and uh, concluding their time of devotion to God. Now, why does that matter for us in our text here? It's not cheap. 
Those are expensive things that you're going to bring to the temple in order to be, in order to sacrifice and make yourself presentable before God. And what do we see in our text here? What does James suggest? That you also pay for their sacrifices. That when you go in, it says here, um, uh, it says in our text that, um, what then is to be done? Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. That expenses is going to be their expenses for the ritual cleansing because the temple in Jerusalem is basically a money-making thing at this point. But not only that, he's gonna have to pay for these sacrifices. Paul is devoting himself to, to financial sacrifice in order to present himself as clean and as respectable and above reproach in this manner. James suggests that Paul pay for the sacrifices for all four of these men. So just to recap, that's four male lambs, four male rams, four four baskets of unleavened bread, four uh, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and then four grain offering, four drink offering, and whatever else they want to provide. Paul has been paying for these, bringing them to the temple, and they're going to sacrifice. Not only did Paul do this for himself, but James asked that he pays for their sacrifice. Now, this seems like a lot. And if you're looking at this, it seems almost like a compromise for Paul. Paul's talked about, we don't need to be slaves to the law anymore. We're slaves to Christ. It seems almost like a compromise. And many people, I think insufficiently, will make the argument that Paul is in error here, that he is simply bending to the will of man. He's fearing man more than he's fearing God. I want to propose a different, a different reality here. Paul is not objecting to these infringements of his freedom in Christ and began to de- debate the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace and, and prove to them beyond a shadow of a doubt what they already knew about circumcision and thereby the law being essential to Christians. James and these brothers have already made a decision that Gentiles don't need to follow the law to a T. In, in Acts 15, we see they have the Jerusalem council and then they sent a letter, which James mentions here in verse 25. They sent a letter with Paul and Silas as he took it around to the Gentile churches. They said they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the, the ceremonial law like we do. Faith in Christ is enough. So James isn't even suggesting that this would be... Uh, that this is some sort of, if you don't do this, you're wrong in the eyes of God. Paul is not objecting to this. He knows what these brothers believe. He says, fine, I'll do it. I'll do these things if it will help my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters, listen to reason and hear the wonderful, mighty things that God has been, been doing. This is a small price to pay. If you'll remember, Paul, later on in his writings in Romans that he's already written up to this point, he says, I would give up my own salvation if it meant my Jewish brothers and sisters would turn to Christ and, and, and be part of the eternal inheritance in heaven with Christ. He'd give up his own salvation for that. Now, you can't do that. It's a no-no. I mean, it, it just doesn't work. What God seals in a person, a man cannot undo. But there... Paul is, is willing to give up his own salvation for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ being, or I'm sorry, his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith being turned to Christ. How, how, how much less than salvation is the monetary sacrifice to simply be above reproach and show them that I am not opposed to the law? He desired in every way to be above reproach in this way so that they would know that the rumors about Paul are not true. 
Not only that, but he was also thinking of James in the Jerusalem church. It's no secret that Paul is associating with the church at Jerusalem. He's trying to lessen the severity of the impact that Paul's association with James would have brought out. See guys, he's caring for his brothers and sisters in the faith that are having to live in that community. How often when you talk to people who are going overseas for short-term mission trips, I know every single one that I went on, that there was always an emphasis, don't make life harder for your M's on the field. Make their life as easy as you can. Don't start trouble because you're going to get to come back at the end of a week, at the end of 10 days, at the end of a month, at the end of two, three months, however long we were gone, six months. You're going to get to come back and, and it's going to be no thing for you. They have to live there and stay there. So Paul is trying to help James and the brothers in Jerusalem. He cares for them. Also, he cares about winning the Jewish people in Jerusalem to the Lord. He wants to be above reproach so they will actually listen. Paul's not just blindly wielding his Christian freedom like a battle axe with no regard to what or whom he may cut down in the process. He's not planting his heels in the ground and saying, no, I'm free in Christ to not do this, this cleansing. He's doing it for the sake, out of love, for the sake of winning others to Jesus. He loves Christ. He loves the church. He loves the Jewish people and is trying to strengthen them and not be a stumbling block for them. As Baptists on the reform end of the spectrum, we love our liberty. We love it. One good thing about being a local Baptist church and having autonomy is that we can exist simultaneously as other Baptists down the road who have a more legalistic approach to things. It's good that we both balance each other out. But the truth is, is exactly what Paul states, is that all things, though lawful, are not always helpful. We should be aware of who we are interacting with and be wise to not hurt their conscience unnecessarily. F.F. Bruce has an absolutely incredible quote that I've been chewing on all week. And he said, as this, a truly emancipated spirit, spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. He's not a slave to his own Christian liberty. He's allowing his Christian liberty to be used for the advancement of the gospel and the preaching of his word. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33 tells us that though all things are lawful, not all things are helpful, not all that we do, though we would be free in Christ to do so, is useful for the building up of the church all the time in every place. Paul writes that, that, we should, that whether we eat and drink, we should do so in the to the glory of God. And in so doing, try not to give offense. He literally used try not to give offense to either Jew, which he's doing now, or Greek so that all may come to know God through his, his salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are free in Christ, and I never want to impede on that. In many of the areas in which scripture gives us liberty to inform our conscience and make decisions, you're free in Christ. Do not forget those around you. The world is watching, and you will have to give an account for how well you've handled your liberty for the sake of winning people to Christ. And don't forget the church that also may or may not have a weaker conscience than you. Remember others. There is no hard and fast rule. There is no, you should do this and, I, and I'm gonna come down dogmatically on that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, remember the church, be filled with the love that God has for the people around you and act accordingly. Use wisdom and prudence. It is the fool who gives full vent to his spirit, Proverbs says, but the wise man is the one who shows restraint. Okay, moving on from this in verse 24. Why? Why would Paul p 
possibly do this? Why would he go so far to appease these people who are so prone to believing exaggerated stories to be above reproach? That's what he says here. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told, James speaking to Paul here, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. He, want, he is suggesting be above reproach. 1 Peter 2.12 has the same, sort of, uh, the same sort of theme in it. It says, uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, we want to keep our conduct pure among the world. Paul is trying to do that among his own people here. Paul has the glory of God in view. He is not so distracted by his own emancipation that he, can put, he cannot put the cup down in order to love his neighbor and make things easier for those around him whom he loves dearly. He has the g- glory of God in mind. It brings glory to God, beloved, when we declare all that God has done and will do to tell of the ways in which God has created, how we have rebelled and how Christ has redeemed and how we should rightly respond as a result of what Christ has done. If you're here and you don't know Christ and you don't know why in the world would Paul give up this freedom? Why in the world would Paul provide this sort of expense for these brothers whom he doesn't even know and whom he is not taking the, the vow with but would do this Brother and sister, if anything will, will make us give up, if there is anything that will make us give up our own opinions, our own <clears throat> desires, our own will for our own life, it should be the gospel. If you're here and you don't know, and it doesn't make sense to you why a man would do this, no, that it is because of the gospel. It is because of the glory that God has created this world. We have utterly rebelled against it and done what is right in our own eyes. And Christ has come and he has taken that people. He has been their substitute, been the propitiation, the great substitute for their own sin, died a death that we absolutely deserve, resurrected from the grave so that we could be part of a resurrection that we didn't deserve. And now he's reigning and ruling over all of creation at the right hand of God, continually right now interceding for you and I. This is the gospel. If you don't, if you have not believed unto this truth, we implore you to do so. It is the glory of God and it is to the glory of God that we declare to one another the hope of the, the gospel. And we will never grow, grow tired of doing this. Paul is exemplifying for us here how another way that we ought to do that in, in the world that we live in. We should also want to preserve our means of declaring that to others. We should be wise about how and when and where and in what means we preach the gospel to others, just as Paul did here. Paul is not rushing headlong into his death here. There's another element of, the, of this that he's thinking, look, Uh, imprisonment is promised to me, but I'm also going to be wise. I'm not going to invite it just for imprisonment's sake. If this will smooth things over in the situation that I think is coming, then I'm going to do that. And so he's going to devote himself to this. He knows he's going to be arrested eventually. The spirit has told him this, but he also wants to love James well. He wants to be wise and he wants to preach the gospel to those in Jerusalem, even as he's there. He wants to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, just as Christ commands us to be in Matthew 10. Many people have looked at this text and thought Paul made the wrong call. 
that he is just giving in to the law of the day and the fear of man rather than submitting to the Lord Christ. I think that is far from the truth that we see here in the text. In verses 25 and 26, notice here, Paul nor James and the elders demand that Luke and the others who are with him, who are in fact Gentiles, be part of the same ceremonial cleansing or have any part of the law demanded on them. Why? Because they've already, we, we've already talked about how in Acts 15, they decided that they did not need to do so. They were not Jewish, so they didn't need to do a Jewish thing in order to continue to not be Jewish. That doesn't make sense. So Paul, he, for the sake of the brothers, for the sake of the people around him, he went and put himself to this cleansing. He goes to the temple. He alerted them because you, you have to tell the temple whenever there is uh, this sort of cleansing taking place that he needed to go to the temple, make them aware and give them an end date for when his cleansing would come to an end. So he went, he told them every day he, he's going back and forth to the temple to, to be part of this cleansing. But even though this is true, it wasn't enough for the, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. It's not enough. But, so this brings us to our sort of final section here, which is the slander of sinners. Uh, the first point was un- undoubtedly our longest. This one will be much shorter, I assure you. However, um, we still need to look at the lengths at which the wicked go to reason away their own wickedness. Look here at verse 27 with me. I'll read it again since we've been a little bit removed. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up a whole crowd and laid hands on him. Paul was almost done with the cleansing. He was nearly done, but they couldn't wait. The Jews, so this people that Luke is referring to here is most likely the very same people who chased him out of Ephesus, who chased him out of Thessalonica, who chased him away from the Bereans. These are the very same people that have been causing problems for Paul from the beginning. It is Jews who are infringed upon because they think Paul is is telling people to reject the law of Moses. They're infringed upon and so they're chasing him out of town. They're starting riots. They're getting other people stirred up. And so Paul was going from town to town preaching the gospel. They were chasing him from town to town, seeking to do him harm, starting riots wherever they went. Likely, these people are from Ephesus and they're from Thessalonica primarily, those two cities. If not, uh, if not only the, um, these people have been led astray uh, by Jews of that region. So at least the people of Jerusalem have heard from those people and have been led astray and, and uh, or have misunderstood the message of Paul hearing an exaggerated report from him. They had come to this Feast of Pentecost. Remember, if you'll remember Acts uh, 2, when we preached that way back in, back in February, I believe, Pentecost is a special occasion in the life of a Jew. It is one of the three great festivals that they have. It's about 50 days after Passover, and it celebrates the end of the grain harvest and God's providence to provide for it. it they gather together, and they celebrate, and they make sacrifice, and they worship God. The Jews would come from all over the world to partake in this. They would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, but for the Jewish Christians of, uh, at the festival, this sort of time, this day of Pentecost, actually takes on a new meaning now, doesn't it? Because this is, this is the, the same time in which Peter gave the first sermon of the Christian church, where God saved a multitude for the first time to the number of people who believed on the Lord Jesus. And so this Pentecost has sort of a, a, a double meaning for now these Jewish Christians. It is in reverence for 
what the loss and the, the histories says was great, and then it is in looking and for, in a, a fervent anticipation for what Christ will do in the new heavens and the new earth. But in verses 29, 28, these Jews, these men who have come from Ephesus, Thessalonica, all over the place who have heard these reports of Paul had come to keep the law that they deeply cared for it clearly. Uh, and they started uh, again for the, however many uh, times, slander of Paul. They've never gotten Paul's message, right? They've always misunderstood what he's, he's saying and have construed things to fit their own understanding. They supposed in our passage that Trophimus, the Ephesians, went in with him to the temple. This is a big no-no. Um, this is likely a convert who Paul had been in community with in Ephesus and spent a bunch of times with. He was one of the other Gentiles that was with Luke and Paul as they went in and spoke with, with James. It, it doesn't surprise, it should not surprise us that Trophimus is walking around with Paul all the time. He's a Gentile in Jerusalem during the, the festival of Pentecost. He's a bit, he's a bit out of place. But Paul had been in community with his brother, had brought him to Miletus when he addressed everyone and then took him with him on this voyage to Jerusalem. Paul had been seen in the city with Trophimus. So these Jews make the assumption that Paul had been taking him into the temple every day for the cleansing. This makes no sense. Paul had been seen in the city with Trophimus. That's true, but he did not take him into the temple. This would have been a severe violation of the law and worthy of immediate execution on the part of Trophimus. They would have put Trophimus to death if he would have tried this. The, the Romans, when it came to uh, Jewish law and custom, they let them kind of do what they wanted to in regards to obeying the law. That means if someone d defiled the temple and needed, and the law states they should be put to death, they're going to put them to death and Rome ain't going to do a thing. And so here, this would have been an immediate execution for Trophimus. Why would Paul bring this beloved brother who he's bringing to testify to the saints of Jerusalem, do something so irrational and foolish as to bring him into the temple where he could immediately be killed? It makes no sense. He loved Trophimus, and, he, and it is evident in the scriptures that Paul loved his Jewish brethren as well. He would not do something so foolish as to put Trophimus's life in danger and defile the temple of the Jews, the Jews that he loved and cared for and the law that he cared for deeply. It doesn't make sense on either front. These men are making assumptions without facts about a man that they are blinded by their own rage to destroy. In verse 30, we see that their determination to have Paul's head was so violent and clamorous that they caused the entire city to be stirred up and they put hands on him. They beat Paul. And they beat him severely. This shows the blind violence that this mob, hell-bent on rebellion against God, can be consumed with. This points to many things we've seen thus far in, in cities like Ephesus and Thessalonica, where people who have opposed Paul's message have laid hands on him and have sought to do him harm. And here, they put hands on him. Paul is beaten and bloodied for the sake of just a misunderstanding. They drag him out of the temple, which is a huge no-no. You're not supposed to do that. The temple is reverent. But they go in, they, they, they drag him out of the temple, and they shut the gates. Now this, I'll leave it to maybe, guys, I'll leave it to your imagination. And girls, I'll leave it to your Bible study on Tuesday to kind of figure out what is to be interpreted from the shutting of the gates. It's, re it's a really exciting uh, thing to be able to study, uh, but I'll leave that for you guys. 
They were going to have Paul's head right there. The, the idea is they're closing the gates. This riot's getting out of control. They are going to kill Paul right now. Verse 31 and 34 tells us that word of this sort of riot, this rabble came up to the Roman co- cohort um, who was stationed at the fortress of Antonia. Now, this is the same fortress that, if you'll remember, Peter was imprisoned in. He was arrested, put in prison, and then the angel of the Lord came to him and freed him. He just kind of walked right out, and then he, he realized, oh, this isn't a dream, and he took off and he ran to, I think, uh, uh, Timothy's uh, grandmother's house, which is in Jerusalem there. This is the very same pl- place that Peter was in, in prison. This is a massive fortress in uh, Jerusalem where the Roman soldiers were stationed at and is where they held the jail. Their leader, we learn in Acts 23, 26, the leader of this sort of cohort of Roman soldiers is named Claudius Lysias. He sent troops down to stop the rioters from causing any more chaos. If there's one thing we learned about Rome uh, during the first century and prior, they do not take well to riots. They will put a stop to it very quickly because order is king, chaos is the enemy, right? So they want to to rule well, and so they want to stop the chaos. When the crowd saw the cohorts coming down and they stopped beating Paul, not because they cared for him or realized what they were doing was wrong, they also too didn't want to get arrested and imprisoned. And we see in the text, there's even confusion about what the chaos was was happening. The the leader, Lysias, he doesn't even understand why this is being caused in the first place. He can't make heads or tails of the situation. We've already seen that these Jews, when when they get themselves stirred up into a frenzy, they have no idea what they're rioting about. If you'll remember Acts 19, it says that any of them just didn't even know why they were there in the first place during the riot. It's not a stretch to say that's what they're do- That's what a lot of them are doing here. They have no idea why they're rioting, and then the Romans are confused and can't make heads or tails of why this is actually happening in the first place. We see in verses 35 and 36, Paul is carried away by the Romans so that the Jews would not kill him. They're arresting him and jailing him so that he would not be killed at the hands of this angry mob. Look again here at the powerful providence of God. God is preserving Paul's life even by chaining him to Roman soldiers and walking him through a crowd. Paul would undoubtedly have been killed there. Why do we know this? Because of what they're crying out. We see in our text that they're crying out in verse 36, the mob of the people followed crying away with him. This is not simply a cry to get them out of the sight, get him out of their sight or get him out of the city. They're calling for blood here. This should remind you of when they cried out, crucify him uh, on the steps of Pontius Pilate's uh, uh, address when they're, when they're saying, free Barabbas, crucify that man, that Jewish man, crucify Jesus. That's what should come to mind here because that's exactly the same thing they're saying. This is, they're calling out for blood. They want him executed. This mob that we see time and time again in the city that kills prophets. If, if you'll remember last week's, Sermon, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets, this place, the fortress of Antonia is very near the same where they killed the Lord Jesus himself. Wes talked about last week that Paul is following in the footsteps of his Lord as he goes into Jerusalem. I would argue he's following the the footsteps of Jesus as he even goes up the fortress of Antonia to be put to death in chains. It gives us fresh perspective to the words that Paul says when he calls his readers in 1 Corinthians 11 to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was captured for the last time here. He's no longer going to escape the chains, but rather he's going to be, in Ephesians 6.20, he calls himself an ambassador 
in chains. The chains is not stopping him from doing the job that God has set forth for him to do. God has done many great things through his people, with his people, even in the midst of their chains. Paul would go on to write four letters during this travel to Rome. He would write Ephesians, he would write Philippians, he would write Colossians and Philemon. And then once he gets to Rome, he'll then write to First and Second Timothy uh, to the church at Ephesus. John Bunyan was imprisoned from 1661 to 1672 in England, and he was imprisoned for his preaching, for declaring the, the gospel of God. And d- during his time in prison, he, re- he wrote the great work, The Pilgrim's Progress, from behind bars in Bedford, England. Calvin worked tirelessly from his prison cell to write letters, manuscripts, sermons, books, and he sent them out. After emerging from his bonds, he, f- he published and finished his famous work, The Institute's Uh, that he would then uh, be so known for. And he continued to preach the Bible. As soon as he got out, he he started from the very next text in the scripture that he he preached right before he was imprisoned. He just continued to preach as if nothing happened. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent two years between his arrest and death at the hands of Nazi Germany in prison, during which time he wrote fervently to the church and the world government. He wrote poetry, letters, prayers, hymns, sermons, and he collected these publishings in a book called Letters and Papers from Prison. One of the guards that was presiding over Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, quote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of his execution, He again said a short prayer and then climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued a few seconds later. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a a doctor, I had hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. This is the doctor who presided over that very same execution, who declared Bonhoeffer dead. And by all accounts and all indications, that doctor, as a result of Bonhoeffer's testimony, believed in the Lord Jesus as a result of his faithfulness. None of these men let chains prevent them from obeying Christ and declaring his name to the world. Neither did Paul. The application for you and I then, persecution, hardship, trial, struggle, difficulty, that is in our future. We will all deal with that to some degree. The question is how faithful and obedient and how much is the will of God going to be at the forefront of how we're dealing with those things? In verses verses 37 through 38, on his way into the, the barracks, Paul makes a strange request. Uh, strange, not because um, that he asked it, but how he asked it, apparently. The Roman cohort and the leader, Lysias, he asked if he could address him, um, and, but he, he does so in Greek. And he had no idea that he spoke Greek. He assumed he was, you know, this Egyptian that was leading. Now, Josephus tells us the account of this. In short, it's a group of Jewish nationalist terrorists who had been killing and assassinating people throughout uh, the Jewish community. Um, They would wait for times like Pentecost or Passover or the Festival of Booths, and they would come and they would slip in with the crowd. They would stab their target, and then they would slip in with the crowd and go away. The entire Jewish community lived in fear of these Egyptians, or this Egyptian who led this group of Jewish people um, seeking to, um, to, to kill and to cause chaos. Essentially, this Egyptian is the Osama bin Laden of his day. He is the one that Rome is spending great resources to try and find and execute. 
the followers uh, had been captured, but their leader had not. And this is why it's relevant to our text. The treatment that Paul has been receiving at the hands of Jerusalem, this Roman leader assumes it's only because he's this great terrorist. That's how severe the beating and the, and the punishment and the treatment that Paul was getting at the hands of his own people was. They assumed the only reason that Paul would be receiving this sort of treatment is because he's this well-known terrorist that we haven't been able to find yet. This Roman leader is taken back and assumed that this is why Paul was getting this harsh treatment from the people and the beating. Well, the truth is, it's much worse than that, actually. Paul has been... Uh, preaching a a gospel of repentance to a people that they absolutely hated, which is the Gentiles. In verse 39 and 40, in closing, we'll say this. In verse 39 and 40, Paul tells him that he is a Jew and he's from the city of Tarsus. He, 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 he's done this prior. He's affirming himself, not just to the Jews, but also to the Romans. Paul, uh, here in this moment is surely a sight to behold. He's beaten, bruised, bloody, battered, and he stands before these Jewish people and these Roman troops. And even so, Paul just sort of slowly raises his hands, hands I'm sure are heavy from all the, the beatings that he's had at their, at their own hands. He raises his hands and, and he, he begins to address the crowd in their own language. The crowd silences, the music swells, and then cuts to black. We'll be back next week to talk about what Paul actually says, but don't miss this here. I want to conclude with three points of application here, okay? Three points for us to be able to take home this week as we seek to obey Christ and follow Paul's example here in our own lives. Number one, as we mentioned earlier, be confident in your Christian liberty. Have an informed conscience. Be confident in it, but do not seek to wield it as a weapon to hurt others who are of the household of God. Have the love of your neighbor in mind when you're seeking to obey God. Be sensitive to others, but do not sin against your own conscience either. Seek to help those who may be weaker in the faith and do not be enslaved to your own, enslaved to your own freedom. Once again, that F.F. Bruce quote that I've absolutely loved this week, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Do not be a slave to your own freedom. Number two, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as Lord, and even more, if you have doubts and questions about him and you're critical and skeptical, I urge you to use reason. The title of this sermon is called uh, The Reason of the Wicked. Their reason led them to justify and continue to be perpetual in their wickedness because they weren't using the reason that has been given by God. The Bible says that all those who come to the Son are drawn by the Father, and all those whom the the Father draws to the Son, the Son will never cast out. I'm telling you now, have an opportunity. Approach any one of us. We would love to sit down with you and have a reasoned conversation about the hope that we have in Christ. We are prepared to give an account for that. We want to declare that to all who will listen. To believe in the Lord Jesus is he and he alone that can save you from from death despair and the blinding nature of unreasonableness. And in that, if you do believe, have conversations with one another. Use this gospel. Use the mighty works that God is doing in your life to encourage, edify, and strengthen those brothers and sisters around you. Number three, chains, persecution, and trial are nothing compared to the immeasurable worth of knowing Christ. There may be days of discomfort and confusion ahead, even for us who are here. Nevertheless, obey Christ. Obey Christ. The presence of trials does not give 
us a pass on faithfulness. Pray and prepare your hearts now so that the day, on the day of trial, on the day of difficulty, you may declare with Paul and so, and so many others in the faith that, it, that Christ alone is Lord and that knowing him is of immeasurable worth and value compared to all the difficulties that we face in this life. So, Next week, we'll see the book of Acts, sort of the unmasking of the vipers. We're going to see Paul's address. But for now, let's you and I take this principle and these, this example that we see of, of Paul and let's seek to do likewise and truly imitate him as he imitates Christ. If you would, let's pray. God, we're thankful today that you are Lord and that we are your people. We're thankful that you have redeemed us from the pit of despair and God, that you have uh, redeemed to the utmost those of us who are far off. God, we ask this morning that if anything was not clear, that you would make it clear by the power of your spirit, by the truth of your word. And may we hear and receive the truth of that word and walk accordingly. May we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And may we attest to all those around us. May we live above approach so that we may preach the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. May we love your people. May we love the lost. And may we glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and continue to sing.